Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we'll be continuing our conversation about wave elections from last week and what to keep an eye on this upcoming fall in state legislative elections. Welcome to On the Ballot. No election season preview is complete without a conversation about the potential for a blue or red wave when one political party makes significant electoral gains, typically against the party in power. In case you missed it, last week, staff writer Doug Kreneisel broke down Ballotpedia's ongoing analysis of the history of wave elections. He's back now by popular demand to continue that conversation. Welcome back, Doug. Good to be back, Victoria. Now, Doug, we don't need to rehash our entire conversation from last week, but for those who didn't have the chance to listen, can you summarize how the definition Ballotpedia uses for wave elections differs from how it's used by most media outlets today? At Ballotpedia, we have our own definition for what does or does not constitute a wave election. We rely a lot on historical context. So we take all of the races within a period of time. In this case of our report, the century between 1918 and 2016. And then we look at the top 20% of elections where the president's party lost the most seats during that time. Those top 20% of elections are then wave elections by our definition. And from our analysis between 1918 and 2016, if I'm remembering correctly from our conversation, the president's party would need to lose at least 48 seats. Is that right? Yep. 48 seats is the stand, the low end of that upper 20%. And how does that stack up to some of our more recent elections? The most recent wave in the U.S. House came in 2010 when Democrats lost 63 seats under President Obama. Before that, there was a wave in 1994 when Democrats lost 54 seats under Clinton. These were both the first midterm elections for those presidencies. But while 2018, for example, has been described as a blue or Democratic wave, based on this look at this century from 1918 to 2016, it didn't quite cut it by our definition. Republicans lost 42 seats under President Trump. And when compared to their numbers that they had following the 2016 election, which was close to being a wave, but historically didn't fall within that 20% range. I see. And so that kind of illustrates the importance of looking at each of these elections in relation to the historical election outcomes that we analyzed. Looking through our report to prepare for our conversation, I noticed a few different distinctions that were interesting to me, one of which being the divide between all of the waves we've looked at in the last hundred years and the waves which occurred after 1945. Why did we make that distinction? Yeah, that's not something that just we do. At times, political scientists separate the study of American elections into pre-1945 and post-1945 periods to account for the social change and political realignment the nation went through during the Great Depression and World War II. We found that the size of a wave election was smaller for all election groups in the post-1945 period than in the 1918 to 2016 period. Take the U.S. House. As we said, over that entire 100-year period, out of those top 20% of cycles, the bottom end of those waves was a loss of 48 seats. But if we look just at 1946 on, the bottom end drops to a loss of 30 seats. In the U.S. House, six waves happened before 1946. Four happened after. And it really gets at the importance of this historical context. We saw really big swings in the early 20th century. 
but those swings have really mellowed out since after World War II. But it shows that if we saw a party lose 30 seats today, it would be more shocking than it would have been in you know the 1920s or the 1930s when parties were swinging seats back and forth. As we get further away from those earlier election cycles, what constitutes a wave will continue to change based on that historical context. That's really interesting. We also analyzed elections by an out-of-power party's effectiveness in gaining seats held by the president's party. There's a lot of data here, and if our listeners are interested in getting into the weeds, we've linked the full report in our show notes. But Doug, could you share what we found in our analysis? Yeah, it's definitely the most in the weeds portion of the report. But as we talked about last week, so many of these waves have come around high profile national events that place a president's party front and center. And that definitely factors into effectiveness as well, which is defined as how well the out of power party does at winning seats that are up for election. So in 1932, the Democratic Party gained nearly 42% of the 215 possible seats it could gain against Herbert Hoover's Republican Party, which was far and away the most effective election by an out-of-power party. The next most effective was in 1920, when Republicans picked up just over 31% of the seats available against uh, Woodrow Wilson's Democratic Party. The most effective in recent memory was you know, after the financial collapse of 2008 in the 2010 midterms, where President Obama's Democratic Party lost around 25% of its 257 seats to the out-of-power Republicans. And House elections typically get a lot of attention when it comes to deciding what might or might not constitute a wave. And that's mostly because every seat is up for election every two years, whereas U.S. Senate, gubernatorial and state legislative elections are staggered and are not occurring at once across the nation. This doesn't mean the nation isn't watching those races this midterm election to gauge the country's favor of one party over the other. So before I let you go, let's dive into the waves within different chambers, pun intended. And what are some of the most noteworthy gubernatorial waves we've had? Yeah, we can surf through these data points real quick. Um, I'm sure you've noticed that a lot of wave activity happens around the Great Depression and after World War One, because we've mentioned you know presidents like Woodrow Wilson, Warren G. Harding, and Herbert Hoover quite a bit. The biggest gubernatorial wave, however, happened halfway through Richard Nixon's first term in 1970, when Republicans lost 12 governorships. In most recent history, the one that didn't really come to mind to me right away when I was thinking about this was uh, the midterm of Bill Clinton's presidency in 1994, when Democrats lost 10 gubernatorial races. Before I ask you about state legislative waves, I'll preface it for our listeners with the fact that the number of seats we analyzed varied due to lots of reasons, like the changing size of state legislative chambers, states being added to the union, and states changing their election years. With all that being said, what are some highlights at the state legislative level? Yeah, the president's party lost 494 or more state legislative seats in the wave elections at that level of government since 1918, ranging from the low end, 494 seats lost under President Dwight Eisenhower in 1954, to the high end, which was 1,022 state legislative seats lost under President Herbert Hoover in 1932. Similarly, we see kind of an increase of midterms, first midterms playing a role here. Four of the 10 wave elections at the state legislative level happened during the president's first midterm election. And another thing to keep in mind context-wise is sort of what the average is or what we typically see. And the median number of seats lost by the president's party in state legislatures was 82 during this century period. The average number of seats lost was 169. So, you know, when you compare that to 1,022, 
it really kind of shows you the magnitude of what those wave elections can really mean at this level of government. But I wanted to add a few more caveats uh, to this level of analysis with the governors and with the state legislatures. They're a little bit more difficult to compare, like you said, for those variety of reasons, but they're kind of interesting in their own right, the reasons why we can't really compare them. So from 1922 to 1946, for governors, for example, one big change was that the frequency of elections shifted over time. So from 1922 to 1946, there were anywhere between 33 to 36 governorships up for election every two years, which used to be the norm. But nowadays, governors serve for four years, with most being up during the midterm election cycles, like the one we're in right now. And for both state legislatures and governors, another big change were term limits. So we don't have those at the U.S. House level, but starting in the 90s and going into effect in the early 2000s, a number of states began to limit how long an incumbent can run for re-election, how many times an incumbent can seek re-election. And so in states where there are term limits, you have these artificially created open seats that are open, not because uh, you know an incumbent said, I'm not going to run for re-election, but because the law said that that incumbent couldn't run for re-election. And open seats just typically tend to be more competitive with or without the backlash that we're trying to spot when we're looking for these wave elections. Yeah, that's really good context to point out. I'm a visual learner and I know some of you are as well. So the full report, graphs, tables, charts, and all is linked in our show notes. Doug, thanks for teeing up our next discussion on this year's state legislative elections. And thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners, this is Jeff Powell here at Ballotpedia's Editor-in-Chief. One of the best ways to be an informed voter is by reviewing your ballot before heading off to the polls. And here at Ballotpedia, we've tried to make that as simple as possible with our sample ballot tool. With just a few clicks, the sample ballot tool gives you a comprehensive glimpse at what you'll be voting on. Ballotpedia includes comprehensive election information for the largest 100 cities by population, as well as statewide and federal elections across the nation. Our coverage scope for local elections continues to grow. And you can use this tool to see what elections we're covering in your area. Click on your candidates to read their biography, view past election results, read their campaign stances, or their responses to our proprietary and unique candidate survey and more. We also provide election overviews and encyclopedic information on our 300,000 articles and growing fullballpedia.org database. Don't head to the polls this election season without checking out Ballopedia's sample ballot tool. You can find that at ballopedia.org slash sample ballot. Now, back to the show. Hello again, dear listeners. I'm assistant staff writer Paul Rader. Yo, it's Paulie Politics over here. And we've got another intriguing episode of Footnote Facts on tap. Today, we're talking about state-level judges, but before that is today's trivia question I pose to you. Which is the only state whose Supreme Court fills its own vacancies? I'll tell you later. First, we're talking about how state-level judges are selected for office. See, they may be either elected or appointed, depending on the state. And sometimes a state picks state Supreme Court justices, SSCs for short, differently from those for intermediate appellate courts. And there are different kinds of appointment and election methods therein. So how about those election methods? Well, most often, that's in the form of nonpartisan elections, which 13 states use for SSCs and 15 states use for intermediate appellate courts. Eight states use partisan elections for SSCs as well as intermediate appellate courts, though not always the same states for both categories. And lastly, we have the Michigan method, which is found in, surprise, Michigan. 
That state has partisan nominating conventions, but the nominated candidates run in a nonpartisan general election. And on the appointment method side, the governor directly appoints SSC judges in six states and intermediate appellate judges for California and New Jersey. But another government body must approve the governor's picks, for example, the state Senate in Maine and New Jersey. And in the assisted appointment method, a nominating commission makes a list of possible candidates that the governor selects from. And that's found in 21 states and D.C. for SSC judges and for 16 states and D.C. for intermediate appellate judges. And what you find often, though not exclusively in states with assisted appointment methods, is a system of retention elections where a judge does not face an opponent, but voters decide whether to keep or remove said judge. 11 states use those retention elections for SSCs, though Montana only has it for unopposed races. And then 20 states use retention elections for at least one type of intermediate appellate court. And that's it on appointed versus elected judges. I'll be back later to talk more about those judicial nominating commissions. But for now, it's back to the show. This fall, 88 state legislative chambers will hold elections across the country. About 84% of the seats making up those chambers are on the ballot, which means there's bound to be no shortage of interesting storylines to follow. Here for a preview of the state legislative elections is staff writer Joel Williams. Welcome to the show, Joel. Glad to be here, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, when I saw there were 84% of seats up for grabs, I sort of envisioned a free-for-all. But just because a seat is on the ballot doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a competitive race. Do you have any idea how many of those chambers are vulnerable? Yeah, so we typically consider a chamber vulnerable to flip if the minority party needs to pick up 10% or fewer of the seats that are up for election that year. So for example, if there's a 100-seat House where Republicans hold a 55-45 majority, we consider it vulnerable because Democrats would only need to pick up six seats to win a majority. Gotcha. So by that standard, how many chambers are we considering vulnerable to change hands this year? Eight. So six of those currently have Republican majorities and two of them currently have Democratic majorities. And where are the vulnerable chambers? It is both chambers in Arizona and Texas and the state houses in Georgia, Maine, New Hampshire, and Washington. And which chambers are the most vulnerable? The two that are most vulnerable are both chambers of the Arizona state legislature. In both of those, Republicans hold a two-seat majority. So that's in the 30-member Senate and the 60-member House. Um, And that means that Democrats winning just one seat in either chamber would create a tie, while winning any additional seats would create Democratic majorities. Tied chambers have happened here before. The Senate was actually split 15-15 following the 2000 elections. The other one would be New Hampshire's House. That one's likely to flip, and that's basically true every election cycle, regardless of which party holds power there. The sheer size of the chamber at 400 seats and its relatively high turnover rate all contribute to its volatility. In the eight elections dating back to 2006, each party has won a majority four times. Right now, Republicans hold a 23-seat majority, although there are also 14 vacancies in the chamber. And New Hampshire has the biggest state house, correct? Yes, And how often do these chambers typically change partisan control? Let's say in the last 10 years, has this been something we've seen a lot of? Yeah, there's actually been quite a few changes. So heading into the 2010 elections, Democrats controlled 60 chambers and Republicans controlled 37. And then following that election, Republicans have majorities in 59 chambers and Democrats have majorities in 38. So if you include that large wave of changes in 2010, we've tracked 66 total changes since then. And of those 66 total changes, 44 have been Republican pickups, 20 have been Democratic pickups, and two have been instances where the chamber went into a tie. 
A tie? Where did we see that occur? So the two ties were in 2010 when the Oregon House went from a 36-24 Democratic majority to a 30-30 split. And then in 2018, when the Alaska House went from a Democratic-led bipartisan coalition to a coalition where the power was split between members of both parties. Alaska has had several of these different coalitions over the years, so that's not an unusual thing. And then in the New Hampshire House, which you just talked about, while being the country's largest state legislative chamber, they've also changed partisan hands the most number of times since 2010. Um, it's actually changed control five times. So in 2010, 2012, 2014, 2018, and 2020. Given it's one of our vulnerable chambers this year, we could see a sixth flip. Wow. Bringing things back to the present before I let you go, what are we seeing regarding state legislative general elections? Are many of them contested races? Yeah, so we're still working on compiling that data in several states where we haven't had primary elections yet, so the general election fields are still unclear. But so far, we've looked at about 4,500 general elections this year. And of those, there are 1,362 general elections with no Democratic candidate on the ballot and 634 with no Republican candidate on the ballot. So 44% of those are elections where one party is basically guaranteed to win. I do think that number will go down a little as we continue to add data, since we're currently missing several larger states that tend to have higher general election competitiveness like Florida, Minnesota, and New Hampshire. And you know we love comparing the present to the past around here, Joel. So is this atypical or are there usually this many uncontested seats? So if it stays at 44%, that would be the highest that we've seen since we started tracking that figure in 2010. The next highest was in 2014, where 43% of general elections only had one major party candidate. And the lowest figure we've seen for that is in 2010, when there were only 33% of seats that went uncontested. Got it. Well, thanks for coming on and breaking this down for us. I look forward to having you back soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. This is Ballot Editor-in-Chief Jeff Palais. Are you a student looking for an internship this upcoming fall? Well, look no further than Ballopedia. We're seeking self-starting and civically-minded undergraduate and graduate students to join our team. With internships with the editorial, communications, external relations, and tech teams, you have the opportunity and chance to learn through an immersive and hands-on experience. Ballopedia's fall internship programs are part-time, completely remote, and run from September to December. To learn more and apply by July 15th, search ballopedia.org slash internships or via the link in our show notes. What do we want? Trivia. When do we want it? Now. I'm Paul Rader, and I've got the next segment of Fun Note Facts for you right here. Now, earlier we talked a little bit about nominating commissions, but let's go deeper into their composition and application. And by composition, we mean the number of commissions, their size, commissioner qualifications, and how commissioners are picked. And by application, we're referring to things like the type of judicial vacancy, and whether the governor is bound to the commission's recommendations, and whether legislative confirmation is required. Now, there's too many nooks and crannies to cover in one trivia segment, so here's just some of the basics. So, composition. There are three main types of commissions. You have bar-controlled commissions, where the state bar chooses most of the commission's members. Governor-controlled commissions are mostly chosen by the governor. And then hybrid commissions are where neither the state bar nor the governor choose a majority of the commission members. And size-wise, you can have as few as three, as in California's Commission on Judicial Appointments, or as many as 49, as in Minnesota's Commission on Judicial Selection. Now, by number of commissions, a state might just have one or a handful of them, but Kentucky has a whopping 61 commissions for different districts and levels of courts. And who commissioners are varies by state. They may already be on a court bench, even so far as the Chief Justice of a Supreme Court, they could be an attorney general or in another government position, 
regular lawyers, or even non-lawyers. But what about the application of commissions? Well, some might only be for specific types of courts or only for specific districts or areas. For example, Arizona has separate commissions for the Superior Courts in Maricopa and Pima counties, and they could also apply to multiple court types. Iowa's Judicial Nominating Commission nominates for the state's Supreme Court and Court of Appeals, for example. And in some states, a governor can decide not to pick from a list of nominees provided to them, in which case the commission must come up with new nominees. Or in some cases, if the governor does not pick within a certain time frame, somebody else might choose a nominee, like in Indiana, where the chief justice of the state Supreme Court selects one of the nominees from the Judicial Nominating Commission if the governor does not do so within 60 days. And that does it for nominating commissions. I'll be back later with the final trivia segment. But before that, we go back to regular programming. Staying on top of politics can feel like a full-time job. Here at Ballotpedia, our team updates hundreds of pages on our site each and every day. Nobody in their right mind would want to comb through them all. And thanks to Ballotpedia's newsletters, you'll never have to. We have over a dozen different newsletters, like the monthly ballot bulletin, which tracks developments in election policy at the federal, state, and local levels. Here's some headlines from the most recent ballot bulletin, which came out on July 6th. Missouri Governor Mike Parson signed House Bill 1878 into law on June 29, 2022, making a number of changes to the state's election laws. The bill introduces over a dozen changes to how elections will work in Missouri moving forward, including requiring all registered voters in the state to provide a photo ID when voting and repealing the use of mail-in ballots while still allowing absentee ballots in certain circumstances. In other news, states completed congressional and legislative redistricting for this year's elections on June 28th when the U.S. Supreme Court blocked a U.S. District Court ruling that had struck down the congressional district map the Louisiana legislature approved in March meaning those maps will be used in this year's elections. Louisiana was the last state to complete congressional redistricting this year. Go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for the Ballot Bulletin or to check out our other newsletters. And boom goes the dynamite. We've got one last segment of footnote facts for you fantastic fans. Now, let's talk about judicial term lengths and mandatory retirement ages. So one of the big differences between state-level and federal judges is that federal judges get lifetime tenure, whereas state-level judges, with very few exceptions, do not. In fact, Rhode Island is the only state Supreme Court that gets lifetime appointments. Among state Supreme Courts that do have fixed term lengths, however, 39 states have either 6, 8, or 10-year terms. Then you have more unusual ones like Maine, which has seven-year terms, and New York, which has 14-year terms. Now, for the state intermediate appellate courts, 35 states have six, eight, or 10-year terms. Oddball ones include North Dakota, where term lengths are no more than one year. They have rotating panels in that state. And New Jersey, where it is an initial term of seven years, but if reappointed, they can serve until mandatory retirement at 70 years old. Eight states in D.C., however, do not even have an intermediate appellate court at all, though Delaware's Superior Court also acts as one. Now, mandatory retirement ages. 17 states do not have that at all, such as Mississippi and Oklahoma. Arkansas and North Dakota technically have them, but if judges choose to serve past their respective retirement ages, they forfeit all earned retirement benefits. Oof. But for states that have a definitive mandatory retirement, 
they can sometimes finish out the month, the year, or the term that they hit that age. Just depends on the state. And usually that age is 70, which 17 states have, but you also see some states that have it at 72, 73, or 75 years old. And then Vermont goes even further and has mandatory retirement at 90 years old. I don't know about you, but I sure don't want to be working by the time I'm 90. Might have to, though. And now, back to today's trivia question. Again, that is, which is the only state whose Supreme Court fills its own vacancies? And if your answer is Louisiana, well, that's wrong. That's the only state that fills Supreme Court vacancies by special election. But if you answered with Illinois, pat yourself on the back because that is correct. And that answer nets you 64.7 points. And out from the bullpen comes our closer. And starting pitcher, actually. Must be softball rules instead of baseball. Is there anything she can't do? Take us home, Victoria. Well, thanks, Paul, my de facto setup man. That's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Doug, Joel, and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with a look ahead to the August primaries and the governor races garnering the most national attention. If you have any questions, comments, or just love for Ballotpedia, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thank you for listening. 